Oh boy. Well, what is up, River Glen? How you guys doing? Good, good to see you guys. Hey, at Pewaukee Campus, hello to you guys. Anyone watching online, uh, thank you so much for being a part of River Glen this weekend. I am honored to be back. Uh, it feels a little weird, not going not gonna to lie. Um, we've all changed a little bit, um, but you know, especially my boys, if you see them running around, they're like four feet higher now. It's crazy, uh, but it, it's good. You know, this past week uh, was the 13th anniversary that my wife and I, Danielle, and I moved here to Waukesha to be a part of River Glen. And then about a little over five years ago, we left to go back to Pittsburgh to plant one church. And now one church is over four years old. And one church would not exist without your ministry, you staying on mission, without your generosity. So thank you for everything you did to invest into us, to invest in the one church. And just know there are lives being impacted for both for now and for eternity in Pittsburgh because of the work you guys are doing here at River Glen. Uh, and I'll be honest, being a lead pastor is way different. Um, I understand why Ben has less hair and more gray hair now. Um, if you get close enough to me, you'll see I'm following suit pretty quickly. Uh, but I started off as a youth pastor, and that's how I started this whole ministry thing. And uh, back in 2009, you guys hired me to be your youth pastor, and this is what I used to do for my job. I would have this thing called MessFest, and we would do a food fight. We'd have hundreds of kids hanging out, and we would throw food at each other, and I don't get to do that anymore. Um, I don't think I want to do that anymore, because uh, finding fruity pebbles in your hair like a couple days afterwards is not fun. Um, but I do love youth ministry still. In fact, it's still a huge passion of mine. I, I still love working with teens. Actually, the reason I was able to come up here this weekend and speak is because I, I officiated a wedding for a former student on Friday. And that was really special to be a part of that. And then it was really weird. I came in Thursday to see the staff and things like that. And I walked to an, op to an office that was a uh, man by Ryan Davis who was one of my former students, and now he's a student pastor. And I had a very moment, a strong moment of realizing I'm getting very old very quickly. Um, but it's really cool to see him in that role. But I love doing youth ministry still. Actually, something I do every summer back in Pennsylvania is I run a middle school camp uh, at, a, at a camp called Deep Valley. And actually, some of the former students I had here at River Glen, they come out and they help staff it with me every summer. And uh, it's just one of my favorite highlights of the year. But uh, years back, one of the first years I did this camp, uh, I was there, we were, I was teaching and, and helping out with the week, and we were on the bus one day going to the lake for a lake day, and I was hanging out with a bunch of the campers, and there was this one girl named Carrie uh, on the bus, and you can just see how that looks. She just had some sass to her. She was funny. I mean, she just brought light to the, to the whole bus ride, uh, and she was talking a million miles an hour, and I was just listening and laughing at her and her friends' conversations, and it was just a, a fun experience. And as she's talking, all of a sudden she's looking at me in the middle of a conversation, and then she goes, hey, do you know I have cancer? And I'm just like, what? And she goes, yeah, I have cancer. And she, she proceeded to tell me that it was a cancer that uh, is not easy to deal with, and there's a good chance it could take her life eventually because it was a brain tumor. And I'm just floored because I was having a good old time up to that moment. All of a sudden, this, this young middle school girl, Carrie, goes, yeah, I have cancer, and this cancer may take my life one day. And it instantly puts me in a spot of questioning. I just start asking why, and it seems so wrong. I actually got off the bus and went talking to another, another leader because I didn't know her very well. I'm like, is she being serious? She's joking, right? He's like, no, she, she really does have cancer. This is a real thing. And it just seems so wrong and so unfair. And I just started asking, like, just to myself, like, why did this happen to her? Like, she's a 12-year-old girl. Like, this, this should not be the case. It seems like a fair question to ask of why, right? And I think a lot of us here have had that same type of question before. That when we're presented with some situation of suffering, we often ask, 
why. Especially when the cases are with a person suffering that seems good and innocent. Like a child having cancer or a child going through anything difficult. Or someone good passing away unexpectedly. Or a broken relationship or a loss of jobs and income. Or, or people suffering because of other people's actions. Like when you, think, when you see war on the TV and you know there, there are kids and families and people suffering because of other people's selfish actions in those situations. We see suffering and we ask, Why? You guys have been doing this big question series uh, for the past few weeks, and you've been going through these tough questions uh, that can often get in the way of our faith, of our trust of God, and us trying to know and follow Jesus. And these questions can be barriers for us. And, and what you've been trying to do is answer them as best as possible to help lead all of you to a stronger faith, to, to follow Jesus a little bit better. And the truth is we've all had these questions that we're going through. And there's nothing wrong with asking questions. I think it's good to ask questions and to be very clear that it doesn't make you less of a follower of Jesus if you ask questions about suffering and all these different things that you're going through. It's, it's good to explore them and not hide from them. And today we're going through a pretty big question. We're going through the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Easy, right? Now this is actually, I think, one of the biggest questions I think that gets in the way of people knowing and trusting God. Because uh, it's, it's difficult, and it's something we've all dealt with and probably all wondered about. And we're going to explore this today. I'm going to be up front with you. By the end of this message, uh, the information I give, you may not like all the answers of answering why suffering happens to good people. Uh, but today is really not about solving the problem of suffering. My hope and prayer today is more about finding hope within the suffering when we go through that. And when we look at Scripture, there's lots of different examples we can look at with, with sufferings. We can look at the book of Job in the Old Testament, which is a whole big story of someone dealing with suffering and his relationship with God and his friends and his family. Uh, we can look at some of the people that Jesus healed and the sufferings they went through. Or the Apostle Paul, as he was working to spread the gospel and plant churches, he suffered a lot. But we're going to look at someone, I think, kind of unique when it comes to this idea of suffering. And that's actually a family member of Jesus. And it's his cousin, John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist uh, and Jesus, they were cousins. And, and Jewish families, they were very close and they grew up in the same proximity. So it's probably safe to assume that Jesus and John kind of grew up together. They probably had a really good relationship together. And, and, and it was probably safe to say that they were pretty familiar with, with their friendship and their being family together. Uh, they weren't strangers. They were probably pretty tight. And on top of that, John had a very vital role, role in God's plan to rescue and restore the world. He was the prophet that God called out to help prepare the way for Jesus, to help prepare people's uh, minds and hearts for the work that Jesus was going to come and do. And one other thing about John, he was also kind of crazy. And he was the crazy cousin. And every family has the crazy cousin, right? Raise your hand if you know the crazy cousin in your family. Uh, if you don't know the crazy cousin, it's most likely you. Um, so if you didn't raise your hand, it's time to just embrace that today, okay? Uh, but this is John. John was the crazy cousin. Uh, he ate locusts and honey for his diet. He wore camel skin as his clothing. He hung out in the wilderness most of the time. But he also had this message that he preached over and over of repentance. And repentance is one of those churchy words that we use. It literally just means to change your mind. To, to change your mind from going one way and turn your mind and your life back to God. To repent and go back to God. And he would preach this message over and over and say the kingdom of God is near. It's coming. And all, people from all over the region would come and listen to crazy John the Baptist preach. And on top of that, he baptized many people. He helped many people find their way back to God. But his main purpose in life was to point people to Jesus. 
In fact, when you look at artwork done with John the Baptist, he's often depicted as pointing, uh, usually pointing at a lamb like that represents Jesus, the Lamb of God. But he was often pointing because that's what he did. He pointed people to Jesus, which is what a lot of us should be doing in life, pointing people to Jesus. But even as he built this huge following, John's heart and his purpose was all about Jesus. In fact, at one point he said this in John 3.30. He said, he must become greater I must become less. He's talking about his cousin at this point. He's saying it has to be more about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He must become more. I must become less. And John trusted that his cousin Jesus was the Savior, the Messiah, the one that the Israelites and the world had been waiting for for a long time. And John did some amazing work in his life. And his work was so impactful and the faith he led was so big that it even caused Jesus to say this about him in Luke 7, 28. Jesus said about John, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. I mean, Jesus called John the greatest human ever born. The best of the best. He was the goat. He was that amazing. Imagine Jesus calling you being the best of the best. This is what happens here. Jesus tells this crowd that John the Baptist, of all the people born, he's the best. But before he actually said that, I think it's important for us to realize what John had been going through before Jesus said that. You see, John taught this message of repentance for God's kingdom. And and he said that God's kingdom was coming, so turn back to God. And John kind of had a big mouth who had no problem calling out sin. He had no problem calling out uh, the brokenness and the sinfulness in the world around him, even to people in power. And there was a guy named Herod who was the governor of that region. He was in charge, and he was a very evil man. In fact, Luke lists in chapter 3 of his, his gospel all these evil things that Herod was doing. But then he added something to that list because Herod got sick of John the Baptist. He said this, Herod added this list to them all. He locked John up in prison. So as John was calling out sin and calling out Herod, Herod had enough of that. And with the power that he had, he had John arrested and put in prison. Now John, who's been doing God's work for so long, is sitting in a prison cell and things aren't looking good for him. And so the question becomes, okay, what does Jesus do after his his cousin gets put in jail? Is he going to go visit him? Is he going to go help him? Jesus, you know, is pretty powerful. Maybe he can do something to help his cousin. But here's what's kind of unique. I want to bring up this map here. This is what takes place is when uh, John the Baptist was arrested, he was taken down to this fort called Machaerus, uh, which was a big prison, and that's where he was kept in prison. And so Jesus, instead of going south to go see his cousin and check on him and maybe help him get out of prison or whatever it may be, Jesus decided to go the opposite direction. He went north to the Sea of Galilee region. He doesn't even go see his cousin. Which seems maybe kind of weird. You know, this is his family member, someone he grew up with, the person who paved the way for his own ministry. And now his, his cousin is in prison because of the work he was doing for God and God's kingdom. And, and Jesus decides to go the opposite direction. He goes north. And when he goes north, what he starts doing is he starts helping people who are in difficult situations. He starts helping people who are suffering. He comes across this centurion. Uh, and the elders, of the Jewish elders in that region, they actually come to Jesus and say, hey, this centurion needs help. And this is what they say to him in Luke 7, 4 through 6. The elders say, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him and said, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. 
So you see, the centurion had a servant that he, held, you know, he, he was very near and dear with, and that, ser- that servant was sick and close to dying. And so the elders come to Jesus and say, hey, you need to go heal this servant for the centurion because he loves this nation. He helped build this synagogue we worship God at. He's a good man. And that's what they're essentially arguing to Jesus. He's a good man. He doesn't deserve to go through this suffering. So Jesus, we know you can help him. Go help him. And so Jesus hears this plea. He goes with them uh, to go with the centurion to see. And and the centurion had this very strong faith and trusted that Jesus could do something. And sure enough, that servant was healed. The elders argue he's a good man. Help the man out. Jesus helps him. Right after that, we see in Luke how he comes across this widow. And this widow, obviously, she's a widow. She's already lost her husband. And this widow loses her only son to death as well. And actually, Jesus comes into town, and they see this boy being carried out. He's, he's a dead man. And he, as his heart goes out to this woman, he tells her, don't cry. And he went up, and he went up to the, you know, the pallbearers. They're carrying this body out. And he tells the, the, the body, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and, walked and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. So he's bringing people back to life. We see Jesus healing people, bringing them back to life. He's fixing painful sufferings that people are going through. And he's healing a ton of people in this section of Scripture, all while Cousin John is sitting in a prison cell. I mean, think about John's situation. He's sitting in prison after doing what, the work that God called him to do. After he paved the way for his cousin Jesus to start his ministry, how John calls out sin and helps people find their way back to God. Now he's sitting in a prison cell. And to get out of prison at this situation, John would need some help. He couldn't do this on his own. Doesn't he deserve some help here? Doesn't he deserve to not suffer? I mean, based off what we're seeing, he's a good man. Not just a good man. Jesus calls him the greatest one that's ever to be born. Doesn't he deserve Help. Why is this good person going through bad things? And word gets back to John that Jesus is healing all these people. And so John hears all this, and this is what takes place here in Luke 7, 18 through 19. John's disciples told him about all these things, and calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At this point, John's been in prison for months. And he hears that Jesus is healing these people. He's bringing people back to life. And I don't really know, but I would think that getting someone out of prison is a little easier than getting someone, you know, back to life after they die. And maybe at this point, John's hearing this and he's in disappointment is starting to set in. Maybe doubt. And he sends two of his followers to Jesus to ask Jesus the question, are you the one? Are you the one that I hoped for? Are you the one that I expected? Are you the one that I told everybody else about, that you are the Messiah, the Savior, the one we've been expecting for generation upon generation? Are you the one, or should we expect someone else? Should I get my hopes up for somebody else and not have my hope in you? And remember, at this point, John's already called his cousin Jesus the Messiah. He said, he's coming, this is him, he's the one you should follow. But as he's seeing this all play out, as he's sitting in prison, maybe this wasn't what he expected. So he's the one who asked Jesus if he's really the one. Maybe he wanted reassurance. Maybe he was pushing for Jesus to maybe have some more action. Like, hey, Jesus, you're fixing all these situations. Why don't you come south and fix mine? But he sends him to ask, and this is Jesus' response. After he heals even more people, Jesus says this. He says, so he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, and the deaf 
here. The dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So he tells them, go back and tell John this. All this stuff is happening. And he starts kind of listing them in ascending order. Like, hey, you know, physical sufferings are being healed. But then he gets to the most important part. But the good news is being preached to those who need to hear it. The gospel is being shared. People are hearing about the good news of me and God's kingdom and redemption and how it's available to them. How they can have life now and for eternity. The things that you've been waiting for are happening, John. Listen, pay attention. But then notice that last line. I, this is specifically for John. He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. He's basically telling John, hey, I don't want you to be filled with doubt and despair. Your identity and your hope is not found in your circumstances. Yes, I know it's tough right now. I know you're sitting in prison, but I'm the one you've been waiting for. And here's the proof. All these things are taking place, and the gospel is being shared, and he's encouraging John through his messengers to trust him. He's saying, trust me, cousin. Who you thought I've been this whole time is exactly who I am. And it was right after this when Jesus addressed the crowd and said, you know what, who's the greatest of all time? It's John. John's the greatest. And he's telling them that John was the greatest for his faith despite his circumstances. And what's interesting is this is right after John asked the question, hey, are you the one? It was a question of doubt. Jesus' own cousin said, are you the one or should we expect somebody else? And Jesus did not think less of his cousin John after John asked that question of doubt. Because right after that, he called him the greatest. So the messengers go tell John that. And here's what happened to John after that. He stayed in prison and eventually was beheaded because of his work. John, or Jesus' cousin was killed. Jesus went to mourn, and pa- to mourn the passing of his cousin. But here we have John, this good person who suffered extremely bad things. Now listen, if John is the greatest and he suffered, if Jesus himself called him the best ever and he went through that suffering, then maybe, River Glen, maybe suffering isn't dependent on whether we're good or not. And that's vital for us to know. This is a major part of understanding the human condition and the state of our world. That suffering is not dependent on a state of person's goodness. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 5.45. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. He's saying God loves evil people and good people. And he sends suffering and suffering takes place for those who are righteous and unrighteous. These are Jesus' words. These aren't mine. This is Jesus saying that, listen, suffering does not just go to one side or another. Everyone experiences it. But God also loves all people as well. Suffering happens to us all, and John the Baptist is a perfect example of that. So then the question becomes, if it's not based on our goodness, why does suffering happen? Why does it take place? And I'm going to attempt to give you some answers today. But let me give you this little caveat. You may not like all the reasonings. These may not satisfy you, especially if right now you're in the midst of suffering. The answers I give may not be the thing that really helps you get through that. But my hope is as we, that we, as we go through this, that we see a bigger understanding of suffering and the state of our, our human condition at the end of it. So why does suffering take place? Well, one of the reasons is this, is chosen rebellion. It's a sin. 
We choose to rebel against how God designed us to do life and live in this world, and our sin brings on suffering. Our sin breaks our relationship with God. It hurts each other. It even has broken creation. And we see that in Scripture, that creation is broken from our sin. And when we suffer, sometimes it comes from sin, whether it's our own sin or someone else's sin. I don't know if you've seen him around, but you maybe you see him in the lobby afterwards. But my youngest son, Kobe, when we left here over five years ago, he was four months old, cute, cuddly little baby. He's not that way anymore. In fact, if we had him first, I don't think we'd have another kid. But Kobe is a kid his whole life. He's been trying to keep up with his, his older brothers. And so Kobe realized to hang with his older brothers, he might have to fight back sometimes. So one of Kobe's go-to moves, if his brothers are ticking him off enough, he open hand slaps them. Like he doesn't care. In fact, one day, a couple weeks ago, we're hanging out with our neighbors outside. It's a nice day out. And, you know, Drew was making, my middle son was making Kobe mad. And all of a sudden I hear this across the face. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. And Drew's crying. And Kobe's just standing there with his mean mug like, don't mess with me, man. You know this. And I tell Kobe to go sit in time out and take a break. He's like, why? I'm like, because you slapped your brother. Like, this isn't allowed to happen. You can't, we've talked about this over and over. Stop slapping your brother. And Drew's in the midst of suffering right now because he has a handprint on his cheek. And Kobe's in the midst of suffering because he's in timeout for putting that handprint on his brother's cheek. And suffering takes place sometimes because of other people's actions. Now, I know it's kind of a funny story of a five-year-old slapping a seven-year-old brother. But I say that because this is what happens in life, is our actions and our sin bring suffering on other people sometimes. It brings suffering onto ourselves. Sin sometimes correlates to our suffering. It's our chosen rebellion. But also, it's not the only reason. In fact, it's not always the reason. And just to be very clear, it's, it's really important for us to never just always associate suffering with sin. That's a very dangerous thing for us to do. Like when we see a natural disaster take place, like a hurricane or, or something like that, it, it, I think it's a very poor taste and bad theology to go, well, that's because of all the sin there. God's punishing them. That's not the case. Sometimes sin is a correlation to our suffering, not always. Here's another reason, though. God uses suffering to awaken us. When, when things are going well, just, just got a question for you. When things go well, how often do we think about and, and desire our need for God? I think if we're honest, not as often. Like when things are going smooth in life, sometimes God can kind of get pushed to the side and we're just enjoying life and, and not, not realizing how much we need to depend on God every day of our lives. But when things go bad, how often do we think about and need God? That's when it goes up, right? That's when we're like, oh, I really need God right now. I mean, think about the story Jesus told of the prodigal son in the Gospels. Right? As the son went off and lived his own life and his sinful life and selfish life, and when he started to experience suffering, that's when he awoke into the need to go back to his father. And that's what it is for us. When we uh, realize that suffering is taking place and sin has broken us and we're dealing with difficulties in life, that usually is what awakens us to go, we need God. We need to get back to the Father. This is what happens. And when suffering happens, God may be allowing it in order to wake us up to come back to him. Theologian C.S. Lewis said this in his work called The Problem of Pain. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Lewis is saying that God often will use pain and suffering to wake us up to realize that we can't do life without him. 
Now listen, I'm not saying that God is causing suffering in your life, but I am saying that God will allow suffering in your life in order to wake us up and draw us back to him. It's his megaphone basically saying, hey, you, wake up. Things are going well right now. You need to come back to me because life does not work apart from me. God uses it as a megaphone to wake up a deaf world. And honestly, sometimes we're deaf. Sometimes we're not paying attention to how much we need God. So God uses that suffering to awaken us. But God also uses suffering to mature us. This is another piece of it. Listen, we all like when things are going well. It it feels good. It's comfortable. But I'm willing to bet that if we all look at times of growth in our lives, whether we matured or got better at a skill or whatever it may be, growth usually happens under pressure when things don't go as smoothly. And suffering is something that God uses to mature us as his children. You see, following Jesus is not easy. And when suffering hits, God wants to use that suffering and those difficulties to grow us in our trust of him. Paul writes, who went through a ton of suffering in this, Romans 5, 3 through 4, he says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Paul is telling the church that, listen, we celebrate and we rejoice in our sufferings because we know in suffering it's going to develop this character and this perseverance and that's ultimately going to lead us to develop this hope. And that hope is the great equalizer to our suffering that no matter what takes place, God has something better planned in the end. And so it matures us as a follower of Jesus and God uses suffering to mature us. So that's another reason. But here's a reason for suffering, sometimes we don't know the reason. When we go through suffering, sometimes it's any of the things I just mentioned, sometimes it's none of them. There's times that we just won't know the reason for suffering. We don't know why something happened. And I wish I could sit here and tell you all the reasons for suffering, and it would just like make everyone feel really good, and we can walk out of here and go, you know what, when suffering hits, I'll be fine, because here's all my reasons. But sometimes we just don't know. Even Jesus didn't know. While he was on the cross, this is what he said. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God turned his back and Jesus felt the weight of sin on him as he's on the cross, as he's facing death, and as the world goes dark, Jesus feels disconnected from God. He's wondering, God, why are you forgetting me right now? He's dealing with this suffering, and he's not even sure why this is taking place. Because sometimes we just don't know why. See, this isn't an exhaustive list, but hopefully it answers the the question of suffering to an extent. But honestly, this isn't going to fully satisfy. I think because when we look for an answer when it comes to suffering, we look for it in the wrong place. What we often do is we often just want information for the answers. But the problem with suffering is that information doesn't usually measure up to what we need. Because information doesn't satisfy the pain of a broken marriage or a loss of a loved one or a pain of a lost pregnancy or a struggle of a job loss, or the hopeless feeling of a child going down a wayward path, or the pain of sickness and disease taking over your body or somebody else's as they're dealing with this and facing their impending death. Information doesn't satisfy those needs when we have the question of suffering. Because suffering makes us feel pain, it makes us feel lonely, it makes us wonder the purpose of life, and suffering can make us wonder if God has forgotten us and where he's at in the midst of all this. So when we look for answers, information doesn't solve it. 
But that's because when it comes to suffering, the answer to that isn't information. Actually, Lee Strobel said it this way, and he was a guy who set out to disprove Christianity because he was such a skeptic. And in the midst of trying to disprove it, he actually pretty much led himself to Christ and became this Christian to help other people follow Jesus. But he says this about suffering. He says, the answer to suffering isn't information. It's the incarnation. It's God with us. It's Jesus. Jesus is the answer to the suffering. Jesus is the one that proves that God is not absent in our suffering. Jesus is the one that came to show us that life isn't about our circumstances, but something much more. That Jesus is the one that proves that God loves us even in the midst of our sufferings. He hasn't forgotten about us. That Jesus is the one that gives us this eternal hope. The one who says that even though things are difficult for a moment, eternity with God awaits Jesus is the one that came and brought good news. And that good news is, is so good that it can overcome any suffering that you and I will ever go through in life. The good news that through Jesus that we are forgiven by God, restored to God, and we can look forward to eternity with God. This is what Jesus does. This is something we do at one church. Is we have this thing called the one thing. One church, one thing. It's kind of cute, right? But basically what I'm saying is that the one thing every week is if you forget everything else I said today, which is a good possibility, just remember this one thing. And the one thing I want to give you this weekend is this, is our hope is found in Christ, not our circumstances. You see, the answer to to why do bad things happen is found in the person of Jesus. It's not found in our circumstances. It's not found in our sufferings. Because if we found our hope based off how life went, we would be miserable because life does not go smoothly all the time. But Christ is consistent. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just like that song we sang earlier. This is what Jesus does. And our hope is found in him, not our circumstances. It's it's in Jesus that we find that hope. And this is the hope that Carrie found. Because in July 11th, 2014, Carrie passed away of cancer. And again, it raised the questions of why. This girl who only got to spend just so few years here on earth, and she was so fun, so energetic, and brought so much joy to those around her. Why did she have to go through this and deal with this and then lose her life? Why did her parents have to bury one of their own children? Why did their siblings have to deal with it? Why did their friends? It just brings up all these questions of why. To be honest, we could try and solve this all day with information, but that information will not satisfy But Jesus can bring the hope. You see, Carrie was a girl who loved Jesus with all of her heart. And the hope we have now is that Carrie is hanging out with Jesus in eternity. That's the hope that we have when Jesus, we put our trust in Jesus. And I talked to her dad, Jerry, recently about this. And I asked him permission to, hey, can I share the story of Carrie with, with the church I was at in Wisconsin? He's like, absolutely, because I've always wanted, despite this pain and suffering, to be used for something bigger. And actually, he told me this story that the day that Carrie died, he kind of had this prayer to God. And he, he, he more called it a demand, but it was a prayer. And he said, God, you have to show me purpose behind this. Because right now I'm not seeing it. That's what suffering often does is what's the purpose? Why is this happening? So God, you have to show me. And over these past years, even though it doesn't erase the suffering, it doesn't erase the pain, there's purpose behind it. Currently, Jerry is meeting with a man in his, in his town that just lost his wife and is struggling. And Jerry's walking alongside him and saying, you know what? I know what you're going through. 
Jerry said yes to sharing this story because he wants us to know that our hope is found in Christ, not our circumstances. And that's the story that Carrie's life can tell still to this day. Jerry and his family and the people that know Carrie, they knew her hope in Jesus, and it's the hope they cling to as well. In fact, talking about Easter, Jerry actually gave me this response of what the resurrection of Jesus means, about his death and resurrection, how it forgives us and brings us back to God, how it changes us. And this is what Jerry wrote. He says, the resurrection means a promise of hope, hope in heaven, hope that I will one day get to meet Jesus. And I have so many questions, don't we all? Hope that I will one day be reunited with my family and my dear friends that had faith in the same promise of hope. Thank you, Jesus, Jerry says. You see, Carrie and her dad and others chose not to be defined by their circumstances. Instead, they chose to be defined by Christ. Sure, there were still, there's still questions, and I'm sure they would love more answers, and we all would love more answers in our suffering, but when we find our hope in Christ, it helps give the hope we need in the midst of suffering, and God wants the same for you, River Glen. When I think of Carrie and her father, Jerry, and, and that, that story, it actually makes me think of John the Baptist, specifically what Jesus said about him. Because there was one more line after he called John the greatest. In Luke 7, 28, he says, Hey, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He called John the greatest, but he, you know who he said who's greater than John? Those who are least in the kingdom of heaven. Those who make it less about themselves and more about Jesus. Those who find hope in Christ and not their circumstances. Those like Carrie and her father and those around her. And everyone, that's my hope for you too is that you and me, we find our hope in Christ and not our circumstances, that when the the situation of suffering takes place, it's not finding our hope in the circumstances, it's found in Jesus. Because in a world where everyone is worried about their circumstances, we need to be a people who find our hope in Christ. When people ask the question of why suffering, we don't merely point them to information, we point them to the incarnation. Because that's where the answer is found, that's where hope is found. And when we do that, it's not so much about finding an answer, but cling to hope in Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for the blessing of being back here at River Glen. And God, thank you for the work you continue to do here in this this little corner of the world in Waukesha through River Glen and, and the people here and how much they love you and love each other, love this community. God, thank you for your faithfulness here. God, I pray you continue to work here in Waukesha and Pewaukee and all the work that they're doing. But God, I also pray that when we deal with big questions like suffering, God, that you remind us it's okay to ask questions. It doesn't make you think less of us, that you want us to explore. And God, you remind us that when it comes to suffering, we could look for all the information in the world, but the true answer is found in your son, Jesus. So God, remind us every day that our hope is found in you, not our circumstances. And suffering can happen for so many different reasons. But despite all of that, God, you love us so much that you sent Jesus to come and fix what was broken. God, thank you for that. Thank you for loving us. Thank thank you for your faithfulness. And I pray that we put our faith into you in the midst of that as well. And it's your name we pray. Amen.